The interview you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia on Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM, WGGTLP Philadelphia, and gtownradio.com. Hello, Planet Philadelphia listeners. This is Kay Wood, the host. Linda Rosenwein, our assistant producer, is also here with us today, and we will be speaking with Professor David Beerling. He's a soil researcher at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. And if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, I, I introduced you as a soil researcher, but looking at your listing on the web, it seems like you have a lot of roles. Yeah, so the first part of my career, I was interested in how the evolution of terrestrial ecosystems affected the sort of global biogeochemical cycle of elements around the planet through the oceans and the atmosphere. And um, in the second part of my career, it's become more translational and we try and harness that knowledge to try and understand how we can manipulate agricultural systems to capture carbon dioxide. Okay, and that's good because that is why we called you today, is that uh, we would like to find out more about carbon capture. We recently spoke with Professor Jennifer Wilcox about carbon capture and remediation. And one of the things she mentioned was the role of agriculture and the possible role of regenerative agriculture. And what is that? Well, that's, it's more associated with you know, practices that make agriculture sustainable. So things like um, reducing the tillage on the land, reducing um, the amount of uh, artificial fertilizers, using cover crops, nitrogen fixing cover crops. But the, the area that I'm involved in is actually dressing the soils with crushed silicate rocks. That's a sort of a strategy that we call a carbon dioxide removal strategy that we call uh, enhanced rock weathering. Before we go into exactly um, your innovations about crushed rocks, could you tell us some of the advantages and disadvantages of sequestering carbon in the soil? Because that will be background for why your method is different. Well, I think the, uh, the advantages of using agricultural systems is that generally speaking, you know, they're a source of greenhouse gases. So they're regarded as a problem for climate change. Whereas if we can uh, manage them in a different way, we can make them a sink for greenhouse gases, in other words, greenhouse gas removal, and make agriculture part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Uh, there was a study that we saw mentioned about enhanced rock weathering, and that's what you're studying. Is that correct? That's right. So here at the... Um, Lever Hume Center for Climate Change Mitigation. We run a, a global network of field trials at different sites where we have been applying crushed silicate rocks to different agricultural systems and then measuring how they pull down carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And crushed silicate rocks are for the general listener? Yes, yeah, so the most common is uh, basalt, which is left over from ancient volcanic eruptions. A lot of basalt is mined worldwide for um, construction industry and road building and so on. 
And um, it turns out that it also has very good chemical properties that allow it to capture carbon dioxide when you put it in the soil. How does that work exactly? Well, the, um, the chemical structure of, of basalt includes calcium and magnesium uh, ions, elements. And um, when you put it in the soil, the uh, soil is quite acidic. And so the acidic soil helps break down the rocks through a process called weathering. It's also assisted by plant roots and microbes in the soil. It basically releases the calcium magnesium and forms either a solid form of uh, carbonate in the soil. So it traps the atmospheric carbon dioxide as a solid in the soil, or the chemistry results in the formation of a soluble form of carbon dioxide called bicarbonate, which then flows through the soil and, and runs out into rivers. So you had two pathways of carbon capture as a consequence of this material being undergoing chemical weathering. Is water, such as rainwater or something, essential to this process? Oh yeah, absolutely. You need um, you need to have uh, water in order to get the chemical reactions to, to go forward, yeah. We heard about mineralization as another way to capture carbon. Is this a type of mineralization? Yeah, that's right. So what you may have heard about, which gathers rather a lot of media attention, is is plants up in Iceland where they capture CO2 from power plants. And because Iceland is, is mainly composed of basalt, then what they do is they capture the CO2, pressurize it and inject it into the basalt bedrock. And there it basically reacts with the bedrock and forms carbonate. And that's like an industrial process for stripping CO2 out of power stations and pumping it into, bas into the basalt formations. And it's a similar sort of thing. So rather than capturing CO2 or from, from uh, power plants, what we do from agricultural systems is use, uh, is apply the basalt to the agricultural land surface. And then we get the plants and the climate and the weather to do the work for us. Uh, and then once you've, once you've applied your crushed basalt to that land surface and it gets mixed into the soil, then it captures CO2 in the soil through these two pathways that I just talked about. So really, it's a, you know, it's a much more natural process and it has a number of benefits for the crops themselves because agricultural soils tend to be quite acidic. And when you apply crushed basalt to the land surface, it produces alkalinity, so it reverses the acidification and that helps the crops to grow better. Most of our food crops are silica accumulated, so they accumulate the elements silica. When you harvest that biomass, you're basically stripping silica from the soil. So the soil pool of silica is depleted. And by applying silicate rocks back onto the land surface, you're replenishing that pool of elements that are important for the plants to grow better. And the basalt has a number of other um, trace elements that help the plants to grow better. So it's actually a nice way of helping to restore soils and improve crop productivity using a natural product without having to use artificial fertilizers. How effective is this process? I mean, does it really absorb a lot of CO2? Yeah, so the, the general rule of thumb is you need to apply about four tons of rock to capture one ton of CO2. And, uh, but there's uncertainty around that. And that uncertainty stems from there being a lack of field trials. And that's really why our center was set up to try and undertake rigorous field trials and, and 
get a best, better estimate of how much carbon dioxide is, is captured by doing this. And you also said that it's from basalt rock, uh, and you said that basalt is mined regularly for other uses. So would this be additional mining for that rock, or is it using like the mine tailings from other processes? How does this work? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, one of the things that we discovered in the UK when we started working was that there were a number of basalt quarries and for every tonne of rock they mined, 20 or 30% was uh, too fine to be of use in the construction industry and they were stockpiling it. So it was a waste product. And so, so the material that we're accessing in the UK is essentially a waste product because the... Uh, the work of our centre appeared on the BBC News and the, the following day, the, uh, the manager of the mining companies rang me up and said, we've got 30,000 tonnes of basaltic rock dust that's stockpiled. Can you do anything with it? And so we started to set up trials in that way. Yeah, and so I think each country will, will um, have to examine the circumstances. So, for example, in, in Australia, we've had some very good interactions with folks there that want to set up an international trial. And it turns out that um, the coal mining industry in Australia and also the gold mining industry have to mine through basalt to get to the gold, the, the rocks that host the gold or the coal. And so, as in the UK, they've also stockpiled in Australia hundreds of thousands of tonnes of crushed basalt, which they've never really had a use for. And so our technology has come along, our approach has come along. And uh, suddenly these stockpiles appear to have use in terms of restoring soils, improving crop production, and also capturing carbon. So I think in the near term, what we need to do is to get each nation to draw up an inventory of what their stockpiles of rock dust are, where it is and how accessible it is. And then think about how we might go forward from there. Do you have any idea what the accessibility and amount of, of that rock dust would be in the US? I don't know. I mean, I know our field trials in the US also used a waste product. A mining company was excavating for some other rock that they were interested in. And again, they had stockpiles of this as well. And in our recent paper in Nature from uh, last year, last summer in July, we uh, reported the carbon capture potential of some of this material but on a sort of nation by nation basis but then we also put a call out for each individual nation to start developing inventories of where this material is. One of the things one always wants to ask about techniques is the life cycle analysis of carbon you know mining it transporting it whatever all needs to go into getting this process to work and how much carbon is actually being sequestered? It's an important question. There have been a number of life cycle studies that have looked at carbon emissions associated with the mining, grinding, spreading, transportation of the material versus the amount that it captures when you put it on the land. And uh, although the numbers vary and there's some uncertainty, all of them show that it's net negative. So you always capture more than you emit in those life cycle stages. Probably the most, um, the highest emissions come from grinding the rocks. And of course, if you're using material that's already mined and, and uh, crushed, then you avoid those emissions and your carbon capture efficiency is much higher. But even if you have to grind the rocks, 
you know, all of the studies so far show that it's still net negative. And I was wondering about other, I guess, possible advantages. Does it mean that the farmer needs to use less fertilizer or are there, is there something else, maybe less pesticides? So basalt contains trace amounts of phosphorus and potassium, which are important elements for fertilizers. And our studies show that if you use basalt, it would substitute for uh, fertilizer uses of phosphorus and potassium. And so there's a cost saving there to the farmer. And also, you know, making potassium fertilizers uses a lot of fossil fuels. So there's sort of emissions averted, if you like, from um, using basalt rather than industrial fertilizer. And then there's also some work that's shown if the plants take up more silica from the basalt, it allows them to, to build stronger, tougher cells and leaves, and that protects them from pathogens and, and insects. The number of studies have, have sort of supported that. So again, you could imagine that they might be able to use less pesticides as well. So there's a, so there's a number of exciting avenues that, that are under investigation here. A lot of people have thought that sequestering carbon in the soil uh, might be a way to draw down carbon, but the World Resources Institute and others have thought that that isn't so promising. Maybe you could say some more about that and how your method avoids the problems that have been talked about, about sequestering carbon in the soil. There's a whole sort of suite of techniques that have been proposed to sequester carbon in soil, and that's basically organic carbon, so carbon in the form of organic matter. Uh, and the issue there is, you know, if you have uh, minimum tillage, for example, and that can accumulate carbon in the soil, but then as soon as you change your land management, you know, say you have to plough it or whatever, then you cause a burst of respiration and the CO2 comes back out. So that's really those those processes that, that you just mentioned in that that have been reviewed by that organization. They are concerned with organic carbon, whereas with enhanced weathering, we're talking about inorganic carbon. So bicarbonate and carbonate. So it's a different, yes, yeah, a different suite of reactions. One of the things that you mentioned is that water is necessary. And that that might be a challenge in some environments, some countries, like for instance, India, maybe. How would that work? And as part of that, I was wondering if biochar, which absorbs water, could compensate for some of that. So when we did our global study, we showed that the countries that do best in terms of carbon capture are those in warm, wet environments. You know, so actually India does quite well because it's warm and wet, has a sort of monsoon season in parts of it. And so, and also parts of China and Brazil as well. So warm and wet gets the chemistry of the, of the rocks to react faster. So that's good. Um, the interactions with biochar is an interesting one. It may actually accelerate weathering and carbon capture if you did basalt and biochar together because the biochar can sequester some of the elements that come out of the basalt and cause it to weather faster. And they can also host the, uh, the microbes in their kind of porous structure of the material. And those microbes are then very effective at driving enhanced weathering. So yeah, and actually we're just about to launch a, a big experiment in Sheffield where we look at the interactions between basalt and biochar. 
and just for listeners who may not be familiar with what biochar is, if you could tell us what it is. Sure. It's basically, you know, organic matter that's been partially burnt. So a bit like charcoal, usually at a much more specific temperature. And then you, you uh, plow that into the soil and uh, it's relatively inert. So it basically doesn't decompose. And the idea is that when you burn it, you generate energy that you can harness to do other things with. And then you, you put this, the biochar on the soil and that captures carbon because it is very recalcitrant. It doesn't undergo decomposition. Of course, with any new technique, there's all kinds of challenges to make it actually be as effective as you'd like. So I wanted to ask some about those, um, the costs, the scaling up, for instance. Yeah, so the costs are you know, still um, very uncertain. When we've done a sort of global calculations for individual nations, the costs for developed nations, they, they come in at around $150 a tonne of CO2 removed. So like the US and European countries, for example. And then in countries in developing nations like Brazil and China and India, where the fuel and labor prices are lower, it comes in at sort of close to $100 a tonne of CO2 removed. Although that seems like a lot, that's still quite a bit less than some of the industrial processes that are out there. So things like direct air capture, which is an industrial process, that's several hundred dollars per tonne of CO2 removed at the moment. You know, I think the important thing is, I don't think we should be trying to sort of pick winners and losers in terms of the carbon capture strategies. You know, the, the climate situation is so urgent. We're, we're going to need a whole suite of different strategies to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. No one technology is going to do it. We're going to need, you know, a couple of billion tons of BEX, a couple of billion tons of direct air capture, and a couple of billion tons of biochar and enhanced weathering. We're going to need a whole suite of them to help us address the climate emergency. That's a very interesting point. And as you said, we need a whole suite of things. Is there some sort of organizational role for federal or state governments? Well, um, you've had a change of government, so uh, maybe things are looking up. <laughs> change of president. So uh, uh, there are already a number of, in the US, there are a number of institutes that are thinking about this on a sort of policy level. And I know there's there's at least one or two, there's, no, there's one field trial, large scale field trial I know of that's going on in California with enhanced weathering. In the UK, the situation is because, slightly different because our government has legislated to be net zero by 2050. So our Several government departments are now funding studies in the UK to try and figure out how we can implement carbon capture technology to help us get to net zero by 2050. You know, alongside that, you need policy incentives, financial incentives, business incentives, a whole, whole raft of frameworks to try and understand how you can roll it out, how you understand, manage the risks and all the rest of it. What do you see the role of uh, private companies as being in the, all of this? Yes, that's an interesting one. I think you know, in some ways you have to have the private sector involved because as soon as people realize they can start making money, then that's one of the things that's going to accelerate the carbon capture technology and rollout and deployment. And with enhanced weathering, there is no, you're not inventing an industrial process or, or a technology. And I suspect what might happen is that as the evidence base grows, that it improves soils and uh, improves crop yields, 
then it's going to become an attractive option to farmers to do this. And as the carbon markets start to pick up, as we expect them to in the next decade or two, then farmers can get paid for capturing carbon and the benefits will be able to restore their soils and increase yields. So you can imagine that would be an ex- a kind of driver of accelerated rollout. So is there anything else we might have missed that you think people should know? No, I think you've uh, interrogated me pretty well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> We've double teamed you. <laughs> not, it's not supposed to be an interrogation. It's supposed to be a conversation. Yeah, no, I, I was joking, yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Great. Pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. I hope it's of interest to your audience. I think it will be. And I think you brought out a, a number of interesting aspects that I hadn't thought Great. about before. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. Good luck. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. Thank you for listening.